you know, no woman wants to be known as a woman in architecture. They just want to be known as architects and professionals and experts in their field of focus or their field of interest. Julia Gamalina is many things. Woman, immigrant, architect, writer, Cornell graduate, director of strategy at Jahan Architects, founder and editor-in-chief of Madam Architect. The latter is her brainchild and arguably her most well-known work, an online magazine about, by, and for women that shape the built environment. Her commitment is to profile women in all stages of their careers, who break the mold of what an architect is, and create more space for diversity in the field. Julia breaks that mold too. She's applied her knack for writing and expertise in architecture, along with her inquisitive nature and ability to connect with people, to build a platform that has now interviewed over 150 architects and designers, as well as CEOs, publicists, journalists, business strategists, and more. She is also the director of strategy of the up-and-coming Trahan Architects, a studio named the number one design firm in the U.S. for 2019 by Architect 50, a rising tide that raises all ships. Julia's efforts in building a culture of community and collaboration give these diverse stories, perspectives, and the women they belong to a seat at the table. This is Alexandra Siepenthal for Design in the City, and I'm delighted to host Julia on this episode to discuss her background and journey to the work she's doing today. Hi, Julia, and welcome to Design in the City. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much, Alexandra. I'm really excited, too. Great. So maybe can you introduce yourself a little and tell us a little bit about Madam Architect and some of the other work you do? I'm Julia Gamalina. I'm trained as an architect, you know, studied architecture, uh, worked as a designer for a number of years and have now sort of transitioned into all things media and business strategy. Um, So for the media aspect, I I run Madam Architect, which is an online magazine focusing on the women in the field, um, sort of the women that shape and thus change our world. And in terms of business strategy, I still am working in professional practice for a firm, um, Trahan Architects, that are based in New Orleans, but have an office in New York. Um, And so those are kind of my two focuses right now. So Madam Architect is a big reason we invited you on here and I wanted to share with you a little story about the first time I went on the site. Please, I love these stories. (laughs) It was maybe a year ago. I think my colleague at the time had sent it to me and to be honest I can't really remember why. I think you know we were talking about something curating the conference future podcast guests, et cetera. But I remember kind of this little voice in the back of my head as I'm scrolling through um, and just kind of seeing all these women depicted in in kind of a very elegant way. Um, And I kept hearing it as I'm looking through things. um, And I just think it speaks to the power of it, really. It was saying the danger of a single story, the danger of a single story. And I don't know if you're familiar with Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Of course, of course. Uh huh. So I love her. I'm a huge fan and particularly of this one TED talk that she has. It's called The Danger of a Single Story. And actually, after you accepted the invitation to, to the podcast, I started thinking about this again. So I went back to watch her talk and she ended with something that I, I just, you know, I think I got chills after she said it. It's this quote that when we reject the single story, 
when we realized there was never a single story about any place, we regain a kind of paradise. And I just feel that this perfectly embodied what you were doing with Madame Architect, kind of showcasing so many women at all points of their career and with all backgrounds, different interests, different focuses, um, and that really just kind of deviates from this really typical all black wearing Stark Architect sort of you know, cliche. Oh my gosh, yes. That was a big goal. That <laughs> was the big point of it. Yeah. Mission accomplished. <laughs> but also, I think, you know, when we're talking about what cities should look like or who should build cities um, and who has a say in that and, and how, uh, I think it starts with this idea that cities are built by diversity as much as they're made up of it. So I really just wanted to share that with you. I really, I'm so glad you did. And wow, the parallel you drew, I mean, to one of my favorite authors, like, I don't know if you've also read um, her, We Should All Be Feminists and A Feminist Manifesto and 15 Suggestions. They're both amazing and, and big references for me and for Madame Architect. So anyway, I mean, that parallel is just, you made my day. <laughs> yeah, that, that also makes mine. And yeah, no, I've, I've read all of those. I'm in the middle of my arcana now. And like I said, it just speaks to the power of it. Oh, very nice. It's excellent. So I guess on that note, and you've spoken about your experience in university as being, uh, as you called it, an incubator for Stark Attacks. How do you think the same sort of representation that almost sets a precedent for what young architects should aspire to is actually limiting to their futures? Sure. No, I'm glad you asked that because that's kind of the seed for all of this. And I want to share a story too. When I when I was in college, I remember I started school and you're just fed that like the architecture program is small, the community is small, you're going to be spending all of your time in studio. These 50 people you see in front of you are going to be your only friends. Um, so get ready. And I remember like really rejecting all of that at the beginning being like what like no way like I don't want to wear black and I'm going to make friends with others at school <laughs> and I'm going to go for runs at the end of studio whenever I want to um, that lasted for like two months I mean <laughs> eventually you know the studio culture just completely takes over and you are kind of you do get wrapped up in all of this um, but I remember always like not feeling good about that and always wanting to break out of those expectations a little bit. Um, and I think part of that was just because I had immigrated and I was always like new in established contexts and so never quite following the rules, you know, of, of like the way things were supposed to be in those places. I was always this outsider kind of doing my own thing. And so it was kind of the same thing, I think, with architecture. You know, I was sold this um, these expectations uh, and this image of an architect. And immediately I was like, you know, doing my typical thing where I was like, well, why? Like, why do I have to be this? Uh, I'm not going to be this. Anyway, and so that that, that always kind of stayed with me. Um, and I think a big part of it, too, was like the architects we were learning about, first of all, they were male, but also the female architects, you know, we learned about Zaha Hadid, of course, we knew about Liz Diller, who's amazing. But I just knew that my life wasn't going to be what their life is, or uh, what their life was. Um, and so I think from very, very early on, I was always kind of rejecting this notion of like the typical architect path and the expectations and the image and, and everything. And I think that kind of led to why Madam Architect is what it is today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I agree. You know, there's always kind of a, a stark architect of other industries, too. I feel like I've even had conversations with friends and colleagues recently kind of questioning why they're doing something. Like, is it because they actually love it or is it motivated by external pressure to become something? 
So I guess at the end of the day, your why is super important and it's exactly what's coming across so loud and clear with every story you put out. You're giving women permission and space to be true to themselves. Mm. Oh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I always, I, I try not to project too much of my own interests and curiosities on these interviews when I do them. I try to leave them fairly open-ended because I want the woman to tell me what's been significant for her and what's been significant in her career and what she's interested in, right? In term, uh, as opposed to me kind of interpreting her life based on what I know from the research I have done before. Um, so I really appreciate you saying that because that is exactly the point. It's just, I want to hear about their lives and their careers and how they shape them and why they are the way they are without any sort of projections from from me or from anyone else on that for that matter you just answered my next question <laughs> perfect we're on the same we're on the, we're vibing <laughs> oh definitely no I'm, I'm loving it <laughs> okay then maybe could you talk a little bit more uh, a little bit more deeply about how madam architect came to be and what motivated you i i guess you so i guess you said what motivated you to profile them but maybe just more of your whole story and journey to how you got here. Sure. Sure. Ha- happy to. My favorite thing to talk about, honestly. Um, <laughs> well, I touched on this a little bit uh, in, in your first question, but I had immigrated. Um, and every time we would move, you know, my mom would basically say to me, like, I'm your mother. Obviously, I can guide you in, in certain ways. Um, but with anything related to, like, academic or professional development, you're kind of on your own because I've never applied to a U.S. college and I've never done the SATs. And, um, you know, uh, you speak English better than I do now. So, so I would recommend that you go to your teachers for that kind of guidance. And so I did. Um, and all through school, all through elementary, middle and high school, and then in college, I would always go to my teachers. And I always went to women because just as a young woman and as a young girl, they were mother figures. And that's what I was comfortable with. And that's what I was seeking. Um, and then when I had graduated from college, I noticed that that sort of built in, first of all, that built in system of mentorship that you have with your professors or teachers just didn't exist anymore um, in, in this very structured way. But also there weren't a lot of women that I could go to. Um, the firm that I was working at when I first started out there, you know, there were only a couple of women, um, one of them was focused on kind of operations and the business side of things, which ironically I, I'm part of now, but at the time I was more interested in design. Um, anyway, then I just felt like I couldn't really, I didn't know who I could talk to in the way that I used to through my schooling. And so, um, yeah, I started seeking out my own mentors, met some amazing women and, um, was getting such wonderful information from them that I just thought to myself, like, I know I'm not the only young woman starting out in the field that has the questions that I have. Like, I have to share this. And a big part, too, was I had always written a lot growing up. I was always writing, like, stories and fiction and not, like, everything, just a lot of writing and journaling. And I really wanted to bring that back in a significant way into just, like, my daily life, not necessarily my career, but just, like, something that I did. And I couldn't figure out how. And with, um, with talking to these women, you know, I thought to myself, wow, this is a great way to do it. I could write these interviews. I could publish them. Um, And so the combination of those two desires, kind of to find that mentorship specifically from women and to integrate more writing into my life, um, sort of that I started doing interviews. And then I noticed the response they were getting. Then the idea for um, a curated lineup of interviews came up for uh, this blog that I was publishing them on for Architects. and after this curated series was wrapping up, I realized, you know, how much I myself enjoyed doing it, how much the readers um, looked forward to these interviews every every week. And I just thought to myself, wow, like, I can't stop this. I, I have to keep this going. And so Madam Architect became its own uh, entity and its own website from then. And now it has grown into, yeah, an, an online magazine, basically. That's really beautiful. It's really awesome to hear how it has evolved for you. 
Um, so I think the last recorded amount that you've interviewed was over 100, but surely it's way more by now. Do you have that number? It is getting to, I think it's over 150. I'm just thinking now between the feature interviews and the next generation interviews and some of the days with profiles that we've done, I think it's getting close to like 175 actually. It's really exciting. Yeah, that is. How many people do you have helping you now, like um, other writers? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you asked. So I have, I'm really, really lucky. We have three other editors and um, they're actually turning more into contributors. Um, Basically what had, in the past when I did interviews, they were really wonderful with helping me transcribe um, and and kind of get these interviews, you know, uh, organized a little bit and the ones that I was doing. But after they had done a few of those and kind of saw the questions I was asking and the, you know, the vibe with which I was approaching the interviews, they have started interviewing themselves. And I think I'd like that to continue for them to be doing their own interviews and continue this idea of architects interviewing other architects, women interviewing other women and kind of all supporting each other. So that's the kind of editorial component and the interview component. And then we recently launched two new columns, one of which is written by Eben Falconer, who's a business development strategist in the industry, um, really, really amazing woman, a lot of integrity. So she's writing a column for us on business advice for architecture firms, which is really needed for architects in general, but especially for, for women that are starting their own firms. Um, and then we have another columnist, Kate Ergeyev, who's writing our historical column. She's an architectural historian and is kind of looking at Madam Architect's past. So that's something new. And and between you know the three editors, we have a be Caitlin and Gail, who are now doing their own interviews, and even and Kate, who are writing these columns, um, we're able to produce you know, more and more content, more and more stories, and not all of it is on me, which is uh, it's a big relief. <laughs> I can completely imagine. That's great. And that's such great news that it's growing so much. Um, in some of the interviews you've done, you've, you've kind of talked about some of the most maybe impactful or just perspective-changing interviews you have done. Um, and I remember I, I also went and looked them up because they were super interesting and insightful and just a marriage of different disciplines. And I thought that was really amazing. Um, so can you maybe talk about some of the ones that, you know, really did change your perspective or impacted you and stuck with you this whole time? Sure. Happy to. So um, one of the interviews and one of the conversations that I that I really, really enjoyed the most was with Jean Brownhill, who's the founder and CEO of Sweeten. Um, Sweeten is an online tech platform that connects those looking to renovate their home with design professionals and contractors. Um, and they've been really, really successful. They're all over the States now. And so she's a trained architect. She went to Cooper Union, um, worked as an architect and as a designer for, I think, seven years or something, and then founded Sweeten. And I'm just fascinated with how she was able to leverage her skills in design and architecture to building a tech company, basically. Um, she's African-American. She, you know, we talk about Black women getting so little funding from VCs, and she's kind of spearheading spearheading a, an example of what can, what is possible. Um, so that interview was really amazing, just hearing about her experience in architecture and then uh, translating those skills to something else and being really successful in that. And kind of on the reverse side, in a way, uh, Kim Holt Holden is, is one of my favorite people in the industry. She was one of the original founders of Shop um, and was there for, you know, their explosion of success and for their growth, um, or, you know, really got it off the ground, 
built a, an incredible architecture practice and then went off afterwards and is now a birth and postpartum doula um, and is building, you know, a, a new business and, and really paying attention not only to the design of birth itself and, you know, how to how to best you know, prepare a woman for labor and things like this, but is also really taking into account birthing environments and birthing rooms and lighting and what kind of furniture is there. And it's interesting. She, I just had dinner with her yesterday, actually, and she was telling me about a study that was done that correlated birth environments with the rate of C-sections and that, you know, environments that are less uh, friendly, less warm, I, I, don't, I don't know what other word there is for it, but you know, those tend to have a higher rate of C-section. And I think that's something she wants to focus on as a next step. So that's really awesome. And then I actually ended up interviewing two graphic designers for Madam Architect, Jessica Helfand, um, who's one of the founders of Design Observer, and uh, Paula Scher, who's a partner at Pentagram. And they're both amazing because they come, you know, their perspective is from that of design and being creative and inventive and just their thoughts on like how creative people put things out into the world and how you produce and how you make new ideas were, were really, really, really inspirational. Um, so I recommend, you know, everyone to check out those four interviews. That's great. Yeah. I really, really like Jean Brownhill and Jim Colden's interviews, um, but I haven't checked out the other two. I think Kim Holden's about the application of design around birth, uh, that's just something I didn't really think of, but I felt, yeah, of course, this makes so much sense. It made me wonder how many other things, you know, really could be solved through that kind of thinking and application. I'd love to know what some of the common themes you've discovered between um, the women you interviewed are. You've, you've done so many now, so surely there's some reoccurrences or patterns that have caught your attention. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think... You know, no woman wants to be known as a woman in architecture. They just want to be known as architects and professionals and experts in their field of focus or their field of interest. So that that is, you know, kind of an obvious one. Um, and I make it a point not to ask, you know, what is it like to be a woman in architecture? Because we all know, you know, there's enough information out there where we know that it's it's not the most equitable thing. And so I, I just really like to ask people about their careers and their focuses and their interests. Um, the other thing is people talk about being lonely a lot and not really having mentors. I mean, Kim Holden herself, I asked her who her mentors were. And she was like, you know, I didn't really have any for for architecture or for starting a firm in architecture. Um, and that's been kind of the case a lot. Jenny Sabin is doing some really, really interesting things um, uh, with, with design the Sabin Lab. And she talks a lot about, you know, kind of forging her own path and not really having anyone to reference or look up to always. So um, I'm hearing a lot of that. I'm also I also saw a lot of women who started their own firms when they were having their first child or when they were having a child. I think everyone was craving that flexibility um, that you know architecture firms in the past didn't always provide or take into account. Um, I think it's changing now. I think is you know we have so many more female-led firms. We have women in leadership positions at bigger firms and women that are mothers or caretakers in another capacity. Um, so I think that thankfully that that's changing a little bit, but I would say those are the three main things. You know, we, we the focus on gender is, is not something that we want to keep doing. Um, uh, the flexibility in childcare or whatever it else it is in a person's life, it needs to be accounted for. Um, and yeah, that feeling of loneliness and hopefully connecting women with more, with more mentors and examples of that, which they want to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's super important for career success and, and not only based on gender, of course. Do you have plans to um, expand 
Madam Architect into other mediums or channels? Definitely. Uh, that's something I'm really interested in. And actually, a few things are in the works right now that I'll announce, I guess, as they as they solidify a little bit. But absolutely. I mean, we're doing, well, first of all, we're doing our first Instagram Live next week with Kim Holden, actually. So, so stay tuned for that, um, which I think will be a really nice a really nice way to connect with our followers just because our following has grown so much um, that this will be a way for everyone to kind of tune in and sort of see a live interview and send questions as, as we talk. And it should be a really fun and casual conversation. I'm excited about that. And actually for that, I, I polled our audience and asked what people want to hear about. And uh, a lot of people said they wanted to hear from somebody that has started their own firm. And a lot of people said they wanted to talk to somebody who used their architecture skills to pivot into something else. And Kim has done it all and has done it all really, really well. So I think she's going to be a great first guest. Um, but no, I'd love to take sort of the storytelling about uh, architects that are women in the field into other mediums. I mean, we've talked about a potential documentary series, you know, a book is definitely on the way, things like this. So I, yeah, it's it's something that's keeping me interested in, in the project as a whole. And, and yeah, there new things will be coming out soon. We need more perspective altering content just across the board in all forms of media. So I can't wait to see how those projects turn out. Me too. <laughs> so what do you perceive to be the greatest challenges that women in architecture and design face today? In terms of current challenges, I mean, something that's happening right now is obviously the pandemic and people working from home and childcare is is, is a big thing. I know some, some little ones have started to go back to school and daycare and things like this, but um, I think, you know, this, the recession that's come out of the pandemic has been uh, dubbed the she session quite a bit of times because it's, you know, women again that are taking on kind of the labor of childcare um, and are thus less, you know, able to focus on less. Um, you know, there was a study recently done or there was a study that showed recently that more men are applying for or submitting academic papers right now than women are. And I think that's because of, of, you know, having to take care of their kids um, when everyone's at home. So that's a challenge. And that's always been a challenge is just like the amount of responsibilities women have when they're working and raising children. And, you know, they're expected to work as though they don't parent and parent as though they don't work. Um, and actually, another current challenge is speaking up as a woman. I mean, that that was a challenge in the first place already when you were, you know, in person at a firm and, you know, in a meeting with the majority being men and kind of making yourself heard and inserting yourself and making your voice heard was a challenge. Now it's on Zoom calls. Now it's even harder because, you know, people will be on the phone and you can't see each other's faces. You can't pick up on body language and getting a word in. Um, multiple women have, have said to me that it's become more difficult. So I'm nodding my head. I, I wish we could see each other in video. I'm just nodding my head at you because I completely agree. Um, one of the big ones, maybe tell us, have you experienced sexism or gender discrimination yourself? Oh, of course. I definitely have. Uh, I think every, honestly, I think every woman probably has in, in, in architecture um, or in general. But no, I, I've experienced it. I've experienced it. Uh, and also from, you know, both men and women, I think there's a lot of internalized misogyny just, just that exists um, given, this, given the society that we live in. And, um, and I think, you know, I kind of went through three phases of it. The first was when I was super young and starting out in the industry. I don't think I realized quite what was happening, or I don't think I realized that what was happening was sexism. I thought maybe, you know, I would beat myself up or think that I did something wrong. And then I, and then, and then, then the phase two was sort of a 
disenchantment of like, oh my gosh, I know what this is. Uh, <laughs> what in the world am I going to do about it? That's so disappointing that this is the case. And I think now I'm in phase three of where, you know, I have gained enough experience. I do feel confident about what I have to offer and bring and I'm pretty established in my career where if it does come my way, I, I know how to handle it. I know what to say. You know, I know if I should acknowledge it or not acknowledge it. So thankfully, I, I feel good about the amount of experience I've gotten to be able to navigate it now. But um, yeah, it still happens every day or maybe not every day, but it still happens. Definitely. And I definitely identify with those three stages. I think a lot of women our age are kind of going through that, just trying to do what they can what they can to change it. So maybe on that note, what value do you think women specifically bring to the table, especially in a male dominated industry? I think it's kind of detrimental to this industry or or anyone, if not all potential is being tapped into. Of course. I mean, women offer so much value just based on, you know, their life experiences and the way they exist in the world and it being different from men, from from things like, you know, people go, I mean, I'll get <laughs> pretty intimate here, but like, you know, women go through puberty and have periods and that informs the way they go about their days and weeks and their lives, you know, and um and then they have the children, they carry the children. So there's a lot of perspective to be gained from that that should absolutely be incorporated into, you know, in a, and incorporated in a significant way into how we design our spaces and, you know, our cities. And actually, there's an amazing book that I'm reading now um, by a, a geographer. It's called Feminist City, Claiming Space in a Man-Made World. It's by Leslie Kern. And she talks exactly about how a female perspective in the design of cities and the design of environments and design of buildings, interior spaces, all of it is informed by things like female friendships and, you know, a sense of safety uh, or, or lack thereof. And I, I encourage everyone to read it. It's really fascinating. Yeah. And what would you say your biggest takeaways are so far? Mm, I think uh, how secretive women have had to be just in being who they are in the past and how many things are taboo, you know, things like breastfeeding in public and, you know, having to sort of hide very natural things that women do to raise children, um, things like this, female friendships. She has a whole series focused on female friendships, and she actually references Sex in the City, the show uh, about it, and how it was actually a really amazing example of these core relationships that happen in the city, uh, in New York New York City being kind of one of the characters, but just the way women's lives um inform the city and and vice versa um so i yeah it's 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 a really amazing book and it's made me realize sort of my own patterns and behaviors and in city life and and being a woman sort of and how some things are different than others um yeah it's 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 a great read absolutely i can imagine so how do you think men in the industry could better support women? Mm-hmm. It's, that's a really great question because, yeah, I, I don't think women, you know, to make significant progress, we have, you know, men have to be supportive as well. I think men just have to continue mentoring and championing in women, um, giving them advice, giving them guidance. And, you know, there's there's like there's something I read where it talked about having a mentor, a sponsor and a coach and your mentor is someone that guides you, you know, listens to you, gives you advice. Your sponsor is someone that like puts you up for opportunities and your coach may be someone that will be really real with you, give you some tough love or whatever it is that you need to, to advance. But I think people just need to be thinking about others, professional development and others advancement. And, um, you know, from my position, Madam Architect, I've met so many people now that I always make recommendations whenever I hear of panels happening or, or, 
you know, podcast guests or uh, things like this, I'll always put someone forward. Um, and I think men need to be doing that more, uh, putting up women for different opportunities that they hear of when they're asked to recommend someone for something, you know, they should be, they should be consciously thinking about that. I think it's all about championing, championing others in the field. Oh, and, and actually I, I do want to add to that. And the other thing, um, men can do to better support women is to expose themselves to things by women, you know, read books about, about and by women, you know, watch, watch, um, films with female protagonists, you know, buy from women owned businesses, uh, just really educate yourself on the perspective. Um, there's so many resources. I mean, I think all men in the industry should be reading Madam Architect to better understand, better understand some things. Um, but I think that's also a really crucial component is, you know, women have read men's stories for, for as long as we've all, you know, for as long as I, I, I know of, uh, so many novels and, and, and things like this. And I think, you know, it should be the other way around as well. Okay, so I wanted to talk to you about New York. You've spoken so much about how you've had these childhood influences that sort of led you there. Could you share some of those? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love New York so much. I actually, um, well, so I immigrated from Russia. And when I was immigrating, we, and I first moved to Toronto, and then I moved to Colorado, and then went to school upstate, and then ended up in New York that way. So just, just a small background there. But um, but when we were immigrating, my family and I would watch movies to learn English. And a lot of those movies took place in New York. And, you know, it was all, it, it was, a, you know, a dream for me of like ending up in New York where all these people were living out kind of their dreams and their lives. Um, but probably the biggest influence for that was uh, this movie called One Fine Day. It's, it's just like a Hollywood romantic comedy with Michelle Pfeiffer and George Clooney. But in it, she plays an architect. And that was actually my very first introduction to an architect and what an architect is. Uh, it was through a woman, which, which is really awesome. Um, but anyway, she was this architect. She was living in New York City. Uh, she was, you know, a great character. Um, and I think even as a young girl at like eight or nine years old watching that movie, I was like, wow, she, this, this seems really cool I kind of want to do what she what she's doing um so that was a really big influence I, I mean I don't know if I hadn't seen that movie maybe I wouldn't be <laughs> maybe none of this would be here yeah I see that and it, it's really important I think it's really important for young girls to see reflections of women that defy those gender stereotypes be it in film or other media and I know we're going to kind of circle back here but I, I think these kinds of things make huge impacts on how they imagine their futures and what they're capable of um but but for it I want to get something else out of the way were you in New York during the lockdown in the spring? So I was in the city the week leading up to lockdown. So like March 9 to March 14. Um, and then I left actually on March 15 to go to Pennsylvania to stay with my mom. And I came back on June 18 before phase two started opening. So I was not in the city for like you know, the, the scariest part of lockdown, which, um, I'm, you know, I'm super fortunate that I had family close by and that I could just sort of escape very quickly. Um, not everyone was in that position. I have a lot of friends who, you know, I, I live in a studio apartment and I have a lot of friends who were stuck alone in their studio apartments for, for all of this. So anyway, I'm, I'm really, really lucky, but yeah, I came back right before phase two opened and I will say I, I live on the Upper East Side, um, which is where, you know, right next to Central Park, which has a really booming restaurant scene on Second Avenue. And as soon as I came back, I mean, when I was in Pennsylvania, I was just at my mom's house. You know, I, we would go to parks and I would go for runs and stuff, but I really didn't go anywhere. I was just at the house. When I came back to the city, I was shocked at actually how lively it seemed on the Upper East Side and not a lot of New York is like this. I think the Upper East Side is a complete anomaly, but... 
I think because the park is right there, you know, everyone that was living in the neighborhood kind of stayed because they had access to it. And also when I came back with phase two starting, um, outdoor dining began and it was just completely booming on second Avenue. I mean, you had outdoor dining setups just like all down second Avenue for, you know, uh, stretches of like 10 blocks and it's been super nice. So actually it was a pretty lively summer. I'm, I'm really surprised to be saying that, but, um, yeah, there was there was good opportunity to spend time outdoors to you know see friends that are you know with proper distancing and things like this. And I'm really proud actually of of how New York has handled a lot of a lot of this um, and kind of seeing it come back to life. Yeah, the me- media coverage or what I've seen of it has been it seems exactly as you described, it, and it's interesting to see that come out of all of this. Uh, I think there's a lot of urbanists and architects really talking about trying to find a way to keep New York like this because it kind of reestablishes this feeling of community and that urbanist dream of returning the streets to public spaces seems to be much more in reach. So I'm happy to hear that firsthand. Yeah, very much. And also, so I live on the Upper East Side and when before pandemic, I, you know, of course I spent time there because that's where I lived, but I was all over the city all the time and for work events and things like this. And now I'm, I'm going into work. I should say that I started going into work shortly after phase two started. I've been going into the office after, after July 4th um, until now, but um, but I did spend a lot of time on the Upper East Side, and it's actually been amazing to really, like, stay in my neighborhood and, and get to know the community there. I mean, I, there's a running group that I run with. I have a lot of girlfriends that live on the Upper East Side, and I feel like I've just really focused on being in that neighborhood um, and seeing those friends. And so I feel like I've, I really have my, like, village within this bigger metropolis. You know, I, I, I feel like I have my community, my neighbors, um, the park, the restaurants there. And so if anything, I've like reestablished my my presence on the Upper East Side or sort of not even my presence, but just like that the fact that it's the foundation for my life here in New York. Um, and that's been really amazing. I've made, you know, closer friends from this running group. Um, again, my girlfriends that live there, I've seen them more and more, probably even more than I would seeing them before pandemic time when we were all, you know, traveling and all over the place. So a lot of positives have come out of it. Yeah, around the world and in the U.S. especially, COVID has unearthed some deep-rooted and pretty troubling inequalities and the dysfunction that some of our systems hold, some of which have been addressed by architects and urbanists in the last decade. Do you see this as a moment? Uh, Do you see this moment as a critical turning point for New York? And will this pandemic be a catalyst for reclaiming public space? Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think public space is uh, is so important to really pay attention to. I mean, I have kind of personal experience in this when I, I mean, I operate in the world as a white woman, but I, you know, my family and I were immigrants. And when we immigrated first to Toronto from Russia, we, we just didn't have a lot of resources. Um, we had to leave re- relatively quickly from Russia and um, we couldn't afford to do much. Like we couldn't afford to go out to eat. We couldn't afford to go to to some cultural events, you know, all of our free time was in public space outside in the parks of Toronto and like rollerblading and taking walks and going to the waterfront, all of this. Um, and I think just offering really quality spaces to do that and in a place like New York is so important. I mean, uh, actually, outdoor dining has been extended to be a permanent permanent fixture in New York, um, which is amazing. But then, you know, there have been articles and kind of some discussions on LinkedIn about how, like, yes, that's amazing, but for whom, right? Because, like, what about people that can't afford to go out to eat and can't take advantage of this and enjoy this? Um, 
And, you know, I run, I run and I run up the Hudson, up along the Hudson, um, sometimes on my way home from work from, from Hudson Square and West Soho, uh, uh, you know, up, up on the West side and through the park to the Upper East Side. Um, and it's fascinating seeing the waterfront development all along the Hudson. And, you know, there's a really beautiful part of it, uh, at, like in the 70s. And. Um, uh, yeah, in the in the streets that are the 70s, and you see that it's next to these huge developments and some of the you know Trump's developments there, and so of course that's you know that swath of land has some investment in it and is uh, this really amazing beautiful park, and other parts uh, along the water do not have the same you know have not been paid the same attention to, which is is really disappointing, and um, so yeah, I think public space and and quality public space in the city just needs to be such a huge focus. Um, and especially when, you know, we're all spending more time outdoors. Absolutely. And that's such a great story about your family and so true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all we, all we did was take walks. That was like our thing. We would, you know, take a lot of family walks and get to know Toronto that way. And that was really fun. And that's great. I can imagine just good childhood memories. Yeah, we play a lot of word games <laughs> on these walks. <laughs> oh, I love that. So maybe on a happier note, what do you love most about New York City? Actually, the walkability. The walkability is the first thing that came to mind. I mean, I, I walk everywhere, uh, and I used to I used to work around Union Square, and very often I would walk home up to the Upper East Side, and you know that's like sixty something blocks, but um, you just see so much. Uh, so that that's that's always been really something I really really love. And then also just how much there is here. Like I feel like no matter who you are or what you like or or where you are or where you're from, you can find your people here. You can find, you know, things to do and see here. Um, New York just has everything and I think that's wonderful, especially for me that, you know, I've I've lived in a couple different places. I'm kind of this weird hybrid of a lot of different things. I feel like New York is really um, you know, fulfills a lot of those parts of me. So with your lived experiences in Toronto, as well as the time you've spent in Colorado Springs, contrasted with your hometown in Russia, can you tell us some of the differences or similarities that you noticed in your experiences living in them? Sure. Yeah, happy to. So it's so interesting. I think the bigger culture shock was moving from Toronto to Colorado Springs than it was from moving from Novosibirsk to Toronto, because both Novosibirsk and Toronto are these big cosmopolitan cities. Um, You know, Novosibirsk is the third largest city in Russia after Moscow and St. Petersburg. And Colorado Springs is completely suburban and like very car centric. And so that was, I mean, that was a huge, huge culture shock. Also, you know, when I was growing up in, in Russia and Toronto, I... Uh, didn't partake in a lot of outdoor sports. I danced as a lot of, you know, young Russian women do. And then when I came to Colorado, that's when I started running and hiking and like whitewater rafting and all this stuff. So it was completely different. Um, but growing up in Novosibirsk, it's so funny. I remember being outside a lot, which is kind of surprising because it is pretty cold. I mean, it is in Siberia. But one thing I will say is that we were really prepared for that. I mean, I have a bunch of photos of myself from childhood, like with a huge fur hat and a huge fur coat and like woolen boots and things like this. I actually I'm going to post some on Instagram soon when it gets cold for some <laughs> cold weather dressing inspiration. But, you know, that was a big part of my life. And um I just remember us, yes, walking everywhere, spending a lot of time outside, no matter how cold it was, but never actually being cold, funnily enough. And then in Toronto, I I remember having so much freedom there, even as someone really young, like I think at 11 years old, my girlfriends and I were getting together, taking the bus, taking the subway, taking public transportation to go see a movie, you know, at a mall and then go shop and go to lunch and something. And just like having that sort of freedom 
from a very young age. Um, I think that's what I love the most about cities is just the accessibility you can have with with you know public transport and things like this. Um, and so yeah, by the time I moved to Colorado, it was so strange. I you know I didn't drive at least not then, and um, and just seeing these different urban environments and like how you know the activities people did based on the environments they were in how much freedom they had kind of what they prioritized and valued i think that really all shaped um you know shaped my desire also to go into architecture but just in general kind of my lifestyle yeah that's great it's interesting how you gained that perspective and saw firsthand how those environments you know really shape people's habits so just to circle back on the topic that is 2020 Uh, what are some of the challenges that you've come across this year? Maybe what's inspired you most or what, you know, where have you found inspiration this year? Oh my gosh. Yes. Actually quarantine, especially when I was at my mom's for those three months, you know, from, from March to April to May to June, um, a lot of things really ramped up. Madam Architect ramped up. Some ideas I have for Trahan Architects where I work during the day ramped up. Um, And I think that was because, before the pandemic, I was spread really thin. I was, I mean, um, uh, I was just, I was flying to a lot of different places. I was traveling a lot. I was going to a lot of events. I feel like everything was very external and I was exhaling a lot. You know, I wasn't, um, yeah, it was all about kind of putting things out into the world and being around people and and things like this. And then when I couldn't do any of that anymore, um, it was kind of like, you know, inhaling. I was absorbing a lot and I was consuming a lot of uh, like TV and books and ideas and a lot of things started percolating. And so we launched, we launched four things on Madam Architect in quarantine. We launched the expert column where women write about their work and their interests. We launched the strategist by Eben that I had mentioned before. We launched Creative Compliments, where we were posting, um, you know, other analog things that architects were producing because so many people started painting in quarantine, you know, and collaging and and, ma- and just making, just being at home and, and, you know, wanting to do something creative. Um, what else did we launch? And we launched, launched the Next Generation series, which came out of, you know, kind of the situation that a lot of students were graduating into it and, and you know, uh, just having this such uncertain time and at such a kind of like fragile period in your life anyway that comes with a lot of uncertainty when you're transitioning you know from college into the working world that I really wanted to celebrate um, a lot of these students and kind of have something positive that that celebrates them too and so the next generation column was a really popular one for us but yeah I think because I couldn't be going to things and seeing things and um, kind of again like putting things out into the world I I was absorbing a lot and really focused on just thinking about things and new ideas and we were yeah a lot of new things came out of came out of lockdown yeah that seems like the silver lining in all of this right yeah you, you yeah, there's a lot of reflection and um, yeah just just thinking about ideas you know ever we were all forced to reflect what this means for the world and how things are going to change and I think that translated them to that then translated to people thinking about, okay, where am I in my life and what am I focused on and, you know, what do I need to be doing? And so I think it was good in those those ways. Definitely. So you've already mentioned that you work for Trahan Architects. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with them and just kind of your whole path towards becoming a strategist? It's quite interesting. Sure, happy to. Yeah, so Trahan Architects is an amazing firm. We're based in New Orleans, started in Baton Rouge and Louisiana, and now have a second office in New York City. But I came to them, actually, so they found me. And um, what had happened is, so 
I, like I said, I studied architecture. I started out working in design, worked as a designer in a few buildings here in the city and, and a building in Los Angeles, um, and then transitioned into kind of a communications role uh, and then doing kind of business development and marketing and, and all of that. And I think that experience combined, you know, the design aspect, the communications aspect, the business development mixed in with my experience of kind of getting a startup off the ground that is Madam Architect, um, really appealed to Trey Trahan, who who is now my boss and the CEO and founder of Trahan Architects. Um, but he was really looking for Trahan to go to the next level. I mean, uh, Trahan is really established in Louisiana and in the South and doing really, really beautiful regional work there. And, you know, Trey was thinking a lot about how do we bring this heart and soul uh, elsewhere? How do we bring it to New York? How do we bring it, you know, to an international scale? And that's when we connected. Um, they had found me and reached out and I was very settled. I finally had figured out my routine for, <laughs> for Madam Architect and a full-time job and how to incorporate other interests into it. And I was not looking to make any sort of move. And of course, that's when, you know, that's when surprises come your way. So that's kind of what happened. Um, and yeah, I'm, that's the conversations that Trey and I are having a lot is just how, how does one take an architecture firm to the next level? What does it mean for an architecture firm to contribute more to the world than buildings? Um, and, and how do we do that? It's, it's been really interesting. Definitely. The, the work Trahan is doing is really inspiring. Okay, so you've woven quite a few different passions into your practice. You've studied architecture and you've spoken quite a lot about how you kind of just made this transition from going from the design process into the strategic development of things and working in communications. And I just thought this was so interesting because you really are an example, you know, of what you can do outside of just being an architect in this industry. Yeah, so I transitioned. Um, it was very, very organic and it also took some time. Um, it's not like I woke up one morning and knew exactly how I wanted to pivot <laughs> and into what. I just knew coming out, I mean, coming out of architecture school, I always kind of knew that maybe the technical aspects of design weren't quite for me. Um it just never, it just, it never felt natural to me when I, when I had to figure out some of those details when I was drafting in college and things like this. And so when I started working, there were two things that, there are two things that I noticed I was thinking about almost on a daily basis eventually. And the first is that I wanted to write, which I had mentioned before. I just really wanted to find a way to integrate writing into my daily life. Um, and the other part of it was, I noticed this at the very firm that I was working for, Studio V. I remember having this thought so much and it was that you know I don't know I think I care more about this company and its people than I do about the buildings that we're creating not that I didn't care about the buildings I, of course I did um, it's, it's a huge passion but I cared about the people and sort of the way the company uh, functioned and what it was doing more and so I think when I was at my next job, um, that stayed with me. And they had a really fascinating director of communications, Aurelia Rauch, working there, um, kind of pitching to press and, and doing things like this. And it was twofold. I had just, I had been interested in that work and I was really interested in her and I just wanted to get to know her better and spend some time with her. Um, and so one time there was kind of a lull on a project I had. I think we were pencils down for two weeks in between, you know, like uh, schematic design, design development, something like this. And so I came up to her and I was just like, I have some downtime. Like, can I help you? I would love to help you. And she was like, oh, my God, yes, thank you so much. Uh, please help me because, <laughs> you know, she was doing a lot on her own. And the way positions like that work at firms, as, as many of you know, is that um, it's all overhead. So you can't, you know, the client is not billing 
customer is not paying for you to have these people on board. You're kind of uh, the firm is paying for to have a communications professional, you know, pitch to press and things like this. So it can be really expensive. So anyway, this woman was the only one doing it, couldn't bring on someone to help her full time. And so when I offered, I think she was really relieved. And I started doing, you know, I was uh, helping with press releases and social media and researching news outlets that we could pitch to, uh, preparing our partners for podcasts, uh, listening to podcasts just to get a sense of the types of questions that would be asked, things like this. And I just thought it was so interesting because it did involve writing and involved people, but it also involved a way to think about architecture in a larger, you know, from a larger point of view, which is a lot of what school is focused on. Um, and so just all those things combined, I, yeah, I started to help her, really wanted to do it full time, couldn't at that firm for the reasons I had just described. And so then I went on to find um, another opportunity and eventually realized that focusing on business development and kind of getting to know the people in the industry and the ecosystem in this way would be good. So I went to FX Collaborative and and focused purely on business development there, just kind of doing a lot of research on the market, on the city, on who was doing what kind of projects, you know, who the people are that were decision makers in, in terms of making sure projects get started and get built. Um, and yeah, and, and that's exactly when uh, Trey and Trey Han Architects found me. Awesome. Yeah, it's always interesting to see how it all comes together in hindsight, isn't it? So apart from idolizing Michelle Pfeiffer's character in One Fine Day, what other influences sparked your pursuit of architecture? Mm, sure. Um, yeah, it was a number of things. I think moving around a lot and just taking note of my physical environments, like I described, was, was really formative. I also drew. I drew all the time. I um, you know, when, when I was growing up, if I wasn't with my family or at school or with friends, I was either reading or drawing. So that was just such a daily constant in my life and, you know, a daily practice, if you will, that that that's definitely something I knew would be integrated into into whatever it is I, I did. Um, and then, yeah, so I was very creative, but I was also pretty type A. <laughs> so I don't think I could be an artist, for example, just, just you know, uh, kind of yeah, being as type A as I am. So architecture seemed like a good fit. And then the other part of it too, a really practical aspect is, um, you know, again, we're, we're immigrants, we're an immigrant family. And I think my parents were like, this girl needs a professional, you know, professional training because that's going to influence, you know, what kind of visa she's able to be on and, and kind of open up more opportunities for her in that way, just like from a pure immigration perspective. So, you know, my options for something like that were like law or you know, becoming a doctor or nurse, and <laughs> I wasn't going to be either of those things. So uh, architecture seemed like a really great fit um, and also combined a lot of my interests. What do you love most about it? Wow, that's a really great question. Uh, I just, it reflects the world in which we live in, like literally, because it is, right? I mean, it reflects kind of technological advancements. It reflects, uh, you know, people's values and priorities and what they want to fund. I mean, a certain people's values and priorities, right? Like, you know, who's funding these buildings? But um, but I think it's like a kind of a photograph of society and time in a way and, and just seeing what people care about and are able to do. And it just, it combines everything, you know, and do you ever miss being involved in the design process? It's so funny. I really don't, but I feel like Madam Architect is such a huge creative outlet for me that like I get a lot of stipulation just like on a personal satisfaction level from that. Um, and also the work, uh, the work I do in strategy with Trahan, I mean, it's so creative and we're thinking big picture um, that I feel like a lot of the skills that I, you know, tapped into when I did focus on design and, and in school are, are being tapped into very much now. It's a lot of big picture thinking um, 
with both Adam Architect and Trahan. So I, I haven't missed it yet. Um, I did, I was just talking to Kim, like I said, we had dinner yesterday and I was talking to her about how maybe I should start drawing every day again, just because that was a good kind of stress reliever for me. Um, <laughs> so maybe I'll incorporate a little bit more of that going forward. Yeah, definitely. It's always good. I agree. So if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently? Mm, that's a great question. I don't think, you know, I think this the response depends on where I am and I'm in a really good place right now. So I, uh, I, I would, I wouldn't say I would do anything differently. I think I would tell myself maybe to worry less or stress less. Um, but at the same time, like maybe it was because I was worried and stressed that I kind of was proactive about some things, you know, or, or, um, made sure other things happened. So I don't know. I don't think I would do anything differently as funny as that sounds. No, that's a great answer. Then maybe what advice would you give to younger architects and designers? What would they benefit from hearing from you? For young architects and designers, there's two things. There's one is to be really genuine towards what you actually want to do in the world, not who you want to be. I think a lot of people want to have their own thing, want to be founders. Um, but I think you, uh, it, it has to come from a really genuine place, what it is that you want to start um, and what impact you do want to have in the world. So I would ask you, I would encourage young architects to think about, okay, what do I really care about? Like what's been really influential in my life that, you know, has helped me along or that I put a lot of time and effort into and kind of how do we solve that problem and how do we put more of that positive thing into the world? And that'll kind of lead you down a genuine path for that, which you should start or be a founder of. Um, and that's exactly what happened with Madam Architect. It was so organic. And at the time it started, I had no idea that I, that it would be its own thing in the way that it is. It just, you know, it started with me looking for mentorship and then wanting to do an interview based on that and then publishing a few and then more and more. And now it's, you know, this magazine. So that's one piece of advice. The other is relationship management is extremely, extremely, extremely important. Um, you know, you just, just, you know, working with people is, is very important. I mean, I feel like after you graduate from college, architecture is just like one big group project. So you really have to know how to pick your battles. You really have to know when, you know, when you should push for something um, or when you should let things go. Um, what is worth, you know, a, a discussion or, um, or conflict and what is not. And, and I, I think just also, trying to get to know people and knowing what they care about and what their priorities are and where they're coming from. Um, I think, yeah, I think relationship management and, and nurturing friendships is, is really, really, really important um, in, in both what you do in work and in your career, but also just in life. That's invaluable advice for listeners of all ages and fields of work. Yeah. Picking your battles was a, was a big lesson for me. <laughs> I can imagine, but you know, also the authenticity of it. I think that's definitely something I would even have given myself advice on. Okay, so I think we can move to some of our crowdsource questions. The first one being, I have daughters who will be university aged in 10 and 13 years. Will they be happy in life if they study architecture? <laughs> I love this question. I think they will definitely be happy that they studied architecture. I think the study of architecture is so... Um, stimulating. I mean, you learn about so much. You learn about history and philosophy and there's studios so you get to produce and you learn about building technology. I mean, it's a really like it uses all parts of your brain. So I'm really, really happy that I studied it. Um, it is a lot of work. I <laughs> That's one thing. But I think also that teaches you a kind of rigor that a lot of people that may maintain in their careers and kind of um, 
that helps too. So I would say the study of architecture, yes. I mean, no one can guarantee if people will be happy in life or not because it's there's so many other factors. But the study of architecture is fascinating. And there's a lot of things you can now do in the field, as is hopefully demonstrated on Madam Architect. So I think, I think yes, I'm very optimistic <laughs> when it comes to the study in architecture and, and working in it. Great. And I guess to talk again about some of the sexism that exists in the industry, do you feel that the gender wage gap is still an issue in design and architecture? Yes, I do feel it's still an issue, but I also think that there's a lot, there's some wonderful firms out there paving the way for what it should be. You know, Studio Gang is a great example. Um, and so I, while I think it's still an issue, I think people are being vocal about it and I do believe that it will change. That's great news. So another question, do you have any advice for an immigrant but resident architect starting fresh in New York City? Yeah, I love this one because I can totally relate. Uh, I would just say meet as many people as you can, find people that you like, uh, find people that you like, respect and admire, and just really nurture those friendships. But I would say, yeah, try to get as familiar with as many organizations as possible, go to their meetups, go, you know, right now you can't really go, but, you know, join their Zoom happy hours and, and yeah, just, just meet a ton of people in the city. Would you consider an architect to be suited for an art curator position? A hundred percent. There's actually an interview that I did with uh, someone I went to school with, uh, Ashley Mendelson, who studied architecture and uh, is now most recently an assistant curator at the Guggenheim. I mean, she is a curator for, for architecture and design, not necessarily for art. Um, but I think those fields are so closely related. And, you know, in the study of architecture, you are also studying a lot of other design fields and visual fields and artistic fields. So for sure, it's, 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 it is a pivot, but, um, uh, you know, a, a very possible one. Definitely. I mean, I really love this interdisciplinary approach to things, too. And so the final crowdsourced question, and this one just made me laugh. How do you keep up with everything with an exclamation point and question mark? <laughs> I saw that one too. I loved it. I mean, there's a lot that I don't do. I, I don't really cook. Um, I don't have any children. So, you know, that, that certainly lends time to other pursuits. Um, I also, I don't do everything at once. You know, there's like a week I'll focus on one thing, a week I'll focus on something else. I mean, Madam Architect has been going on for two and a half years now. So it's not like everything that we do now just sprouted, you know, from one week. It, it, it all took time. Um, but I will say I'm also... Uh, again, I'm extremely type A and very much a planner and organizer. And so I'm pretty good now about just knowing what to expect from, from my schedule and things that are coming my way and like really planning things out and being disciplined about it. Um, so I would say probably a, a combination of those three things. It's, you know, I don't do other things. Uh, I don't do everything at once. And I'm, I try to stay stay on top of my organizing my, my days and my weekends and things like this. All right, Julia, is there anything else we didn't cover that you would like to discuss? No, we covered so much. This was so fun. And I really got to talk about things that I, you know, I haven't talked about on other podcasts. So thank you for that. That's been really awesome. What about you? Is there anything else that you want to know or that you feel like we didn't cover? I think we covered pretty much everything. Well, your questions are so great. And you you were so thoughtful about it ahead of time anyway that like, yeah, this was, this was easy. Where can people go to follow you as well as Chehan? Uh, architect's work and Madam Architect. Sure. So we are all on Instagram. Uh, Madam Architect is on Instagram as at Madam Architect, and that's Madam with an E. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Julia.Gamalina, and Trahan Architects is also there at Trahan Architects. And also people can find the website at madamarchitect.org. So Madam with an E, and it's .org versus .com. <laughs> Julia, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on Design in the City. 
it truly was a pleasure and just so much fun. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thanks so much, Alexandra. The pleasure is all mine. This was really fun. That was Julia Gamalina of Madam Architect. If you're curious to learn more about Julia or follow her in her work at Madam Architect or Chahan Architects, all notes can be found in this episode's description. This podcast is brought to you by Resite, the global nonprofit connecting people and ideas to improve the urban environment. It was recorded at the WeWork offices in Prague with support from the city of Prague. You can find more talks, stories, and podcasts at Resite.org or become involved with the Resite community through our various social channels. All links and info you need can be found in this show's description. This podcast was produced by myself, Alexandra Siebenthal, with support from Martin Berry, Radhika Andrachkova, Elizabeth Mills, and Elizabeth Novacek, and edited by Little Big Studio. Mm-hmm.